0: Well, hello, everybody. Thank you very much for joining us today for a podcast about the demographic drought and all the challenges that we're facing with it um, my name is david hughes i'm the hr consulting practice leader for the southeast here at one digital and i am very pleased to be joined by travis Dahmert, who's the svp of of talent here at one digital so he's got the corporate role and i help with with some of the outside um, activities as a consultant with our clients and so together i think that's a kind of a diverse viewpoint that we'll have here today. Um, Hopefully we can get along, David. I think we will. (laughs) I think we will, too. I I think we will. Thank you. Thanks for joining. I think this will will be fun. All right. So through our conversation today, Travis is actually going to touch on some five key sort of myths and ways that we should tweak our thinking about those five key elements with regard to a retention strategy. Absolutely. So I, I think back to this phrase that, that you and I have both heard over the last couple of decades, and that's the war for talent comment. Um, and it was actually you who reminded me that it was actually McKinsey that coined that phrase back in 1997. And this is a topic that I have this demographic drought topic, this shortage of people, this sans-demic in Latin as they're calling it. This is something I've actually talked about for more than 10 years. And it's sort of like one of these things that you and I have both seen coming at us through the, through the tunnel. And it's, you know, the pandemic sort of let other people see it. Maybe it was a smoldering fire and the pandemic was some gasoline that got thrown on it. Right. And it suddenly became known to everybody.
1: And it's interesting in a group full of leaders, if you ask them, you know, uh, how many people have heard about the war for talent? Every hand goes up, you know, top issue among CEOs in the, in the world. Uh, How many of you heard about it more than two years ago? And most of the hands go down. How many of you heard about it more than 10 years ago? I mean, David, you were probably like chicken little running around saying like, hey, we've got a problem coming. And, and people 10 years ago, you know, that recession really put a dent in it. And we stopped looking. But it was coming the whole time.
0: It, it, it really has. And so, of course, with all these sorts of things, the data becomes more clear given the lens of time. And so now the data is really clear about when this really started. And it really, you can point to the year 2000, it's got nothing to do with the change of the millennium, but the year 2000 was when really the impact of the baby boomers reached their peak. It was the, it was the height of the prime working age workforce as a proportion of our population in America. And since that time, it's, We've been descending down the backside of that baby boomer curve at exactly the same slope that we went up it, of course, which is interesting in and of itself. So this proportion of, of 15 to 64-year-olds to has been shrinking for now 22 years. And very coincidentally, and it is truly coincidentally, the labor force participation rate also peaked in the year 2000. So right. that had been a stable number that went on for hundred years or so in the, in the 52% range, but then it had this big boom, similar to a baby boom, but that was the sexual revolution, right? This is when women came into the workforce through the sixties and seventies, finally felt its maximum impact. But now again, since 2000 for 22 years now, that has been on a steady decline and there are all kinds of reasons behind that and that's a whole different podcast for another time about all the contributing factors but but it is things like the wealth effect of baby boomer money being trapped passed on to kids and it, it is people deciding that childcare is so expensive, they're gonna try and get by on one income rather than two. And there's an opioid addiction in this country and 28 million Americans are alcoholics. And there's just, you know, there's a lot of things that contribute to it. But um, in the year 2021, for the first time, the absolute size, the absolute size, not just as a proportion, would have been shrinking for 22 years, but in 2021, the absolute size of that prime age working force went negative. And that is not going to change. It's, it's kind of uh, an unavoidable reality. And, and why these problems, to me, as an observer of it and as a practitioner in it every day, I think it's the biggest people-related business challenge of the next three decades because these things are very slow to happen and they're very slow to turn around.
1: David, that, I think those it's those other factors that we didn't really see coming. Like when you're standing in 2000, you look at a population pyramid and you see, uh-oh, uh, it's inverting, but you don't see sentiment. You don't see some of the other things. And I think at that time, you think about, where were we in 2000? My gosh, we had, you know, these technology revolutions. We had so many new things. It, you thought, well, certainly we can solve for this. But we didn't expect uh, people to not work, who could work, you know, people to actively disengage from the workforce, that the, the the attitude towards work, very different than their grandparents' Um, the need to work very different from their grandparents, the opportunities and options with respect to work, whether it's gig work or um, various things, they, it was a different ball game. And that suddenly those things started turning into sort of perfect storm because, you know, they were compounding and the technology couldn't come back fast enough. Immigration, we couldn't bring people in fast enough. And so separating signal from noise here got really hard and then add to that the pandemic and and suddenly this huge attitudinal shift towards how I feel about going to work right now. And you look at, you know, a 55% increase in voluntary resignations. Um, it was like, hey, there might be an issue and then suddenly go smacked in the face. And I think our key thing now is don't think that 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 one-time event in 21 of massive voluntary resignation going away is going to fix things now people need to work not everybody's not just going to quit but we have these unfortunately strong headwinds that like you said are multi-generational this is a this is an existential issue and there will be companies that cannot hit their growth goals or maybe don't survive
0: because they didn't plan accordingly that 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 is exactly right. And I think it's it's really a critical thing that I observe in my in my travels and my conversations with with many of our customers. I see the problem in segments of one third, one third, and one third. I think a third of the customers that I talk to absolutely understand the problem. They accept it, and they're doing their level best to do something about it. Mm-hmm. and a And a third or in the middle where they're like, "Okay, now we kind of know it's real, but maybe they feel a little paralyzed or they're a little afraid or they don't want to be an early adopter, and they're sort of taking a wait and see approach and then sadly, that last third that you just mentioned um where they are in flat denial, and I really fear for those customers um, I mean, I do think it's an existential threat if if people you know, this gap between winners and losers in business is really going to be driven wider um, because of this uh, this very factor. And obviously we'd want all of our customers to be winners, right? So, you know, it's a part of our mission to reach back and grab them by the hand and, and sometimes gently shake them by the shoulders, you know, and we do that with information and we do it with data and we do it with education. And fortunately in working with so many customers, we do get to see what's working in the world, right? We get to see what works, what doesn't work, and help people avoid pitfalls that others have made, you know, before them. Um, and for me, that's the funnest part of, of my work is, is is learning what's going on, how people are adapting to it. But I, I think that word existential threat cannot be stressed enough. If people, you know, it's truly a, a, an adapt or die kind of situation. I just think there's no two ways about it. And... um. Uh, you know, l- later on, I, I want you to tell a story about a bear, but, <laughs> but I'm, but I'm going to tell a story about a horse race because okay. it's kind of like being, it's cut what, you know, and the horse racing is paramutual betting, right? That just means that you've got to be making a better bet than the other people, right? You're all operating out of one same pool of betting money, right? It's a zero sum game. Whoever, whoever's the winner of it, someone else is the loser. And, and I think that in the short run. This is a permmutual bet. In the short run you've got to be better than the next person. But in the long run, in the long run it's our hope that we float all the boats higher, right? That 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 people who were sort of a, a laggard change their thinking and then it's not a zero sum game anymore, right? If we can get everyone adopting um the kinds of things that you're going to talk about in a few minutes about about rethinking that the way that they approach engagement with their people, that everyone can win, we don't have to have a third of the people be losers, right? There are a lot of people in the world who could who could
1: bring their talent to your organization, and just maybe not the way you're set up today. So you're right there, there is a bigger pie, a bigger uh, solution that should give us hope. Um, But when, when you're making an immediate higher today with the situation you're in, um, you need to attract talent from someone else. And that kind of does lead to the bear story. I mean, people probably heard this joke, but you know, two friends in the woods see a bear and one sits down and begins to take off his hiking boots and put on a pair of tennis shoes. And the other friend says, what are you doing? You know, you can't outrun a bear. He says, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. And it's sort of a morbid joke and this is not a joking matter but that is kind of the short term situation is there is talent out there and it's pretty mobile can can you get what you need to achieve your growth goals can your industry draw people into your profession um into your sector to achieve your medium term and and longer term growth goals and and then obviously can the country or can our economies or for global companies, can your organization uh, ultimately grow and serve your, your mission, whatever it is. So anyway, um, the joke usually, you know, draws a little bit of a laugh, but it's kind of a (laughs) reflective of the short term situation. Like, are you getting your tennis shoes on? If you're standing there watching the bear and you're thinking, huh, maybe you're in that middle third, we can try to help, you know, but if you've got your back turned and you're like, there's no bear,
0: bears don't live around here.
1: No, there's a bear. I, I assure right. you, there is, is a is, bear.
0: That is exactly right, and and it's it is important to point out the difference between short term and long term. You know, in the in the short run, we have no option but to to fight this war, uh, you know, against our competitors, against the the employer down the street. No question about it. And it's it's really analogous to what's going on with wages. in In the short run, wage inflation is a reality for everybody. And you cannot just be intransigent about it and dig your heels in and stomp your feet or whatever else you want to say about it. That's not going to work in the in the short run. That's not going to work in the long run. We would love to talk about strategies that are more long term oriented, that change that conversation for people. Right. I mean, people are available. You said it yourself, you know. I don't know. Twenty-five point seven percent of people did take a new job last year, but forty or fifty percent were willing to take a new job. Mm-hmm. So the the workforce is mobile. People will they will go, and that that is a danger, and it is an opportunity. Um, and so, you know, there are there are steps that 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 you have taken about rethinking the way that you go about it here for for our three thousand plus people. There are steps that on a more broad uh, basis that we discuss with our customers, things that we see working. And so, you know, I'm, I hope we can transition to you taking us through, um, sure. the things that observations that you think, you know, work and that maybe they're blind spots for people. Uh, I, I find it very interesting.
1: Well, sure, David. There there are a handful of things that I think are almost sacred if you're in the talent space and you think these are the ways the best employers should be thinking and the things they should be doing. And I think it's been a wake-up call that even a best place to work, even a place with low turnover and an award-winning culture, needs to be thinking about this with fresh eyes and looking at where do we where might we be missing some things? And so um, I sometimes talk about these, these uh, five surprising mistakes companies make when it comes to talent retention. And, and it really reminds me of that phrase that, you know, the road to, in this case, turnover is paved with good intentions. And so <laughs> I'd love to hit the five and I'd love your feedback on these too, David. Um, but the first one is wake up your leaders and make sure that they are retaining their people. And that sounds like what we're saying. We're saying, wake up, there's a bear. Make sure everybody knows about it and that you are directing your leaders to retain their people. And I would say that may have some immediate, unexpected and painful consequences. And and the reason is if you direct a leader who's already busy to take on a new initiative, in this case, retain your people, are they going to do what is easy and effective or hard and effective? Are they going to do what is short-term effective or long-term effective? Well, unfortunately, they're most likely to grab the easiest, most immediate lever. And what is that thing that a manager will do if they think, oh my gosh, I've just been told I can't lose my people, I need to keep them right now? Pay them more. And, And it should have some benefit. Um, you know, compensation, it works a little bit like a drug. It definitely changes behavior. And so in the short term, that might help a little bit. Unfortunately, but it
0: wears But it off. like a drug, it wears off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: So expect they're going to come back for another hit in six months or maybe even sooner in a market like this. So what happens when you start playing with the, the, the largest expense in your organization and you start bumping it up? Well, you never get it you don't get to swap it back. Like, okay, uh, 2022 or 23 is over. So let's reduce salaries. No, you're you're making long-term commitments for short-term payoffs. And I guess I can't stress, I can't overstress the fact that if you aren't paying commensurate with market, if you don't have a value proposition, you're just hoping people won't find out that you're underpaying them. Well, that's a losing strategy too. So you can't ignore comp, but don't be surprised if you say, retain your people, But that's the first lever people go to. And that's where change. one little word in here. And I think you can have a much more effective and long-term strategy. And that is direct your leaders to grow their people. It brings on a whole different mindset. If I've got to grow them, and that's really what I'm being challenged to do, maybe held accountable for, is what does that lead to? It leads to a very different conversation. I'm immediately thinking about, okay, do my people have goals? Do my people have an idea of what we're trying to accomplish? Do my people have clarity in their job? Do I know where my people want to grow? Am I even having that growth conversation? And the great thing is you can often trigger growth in a person with nothing more than a conversation. The investments tend to be relatively small and they have a long-term payoff. So, David, just kind of curious if you have any other takes on that first one.
0: Yeah, well, I think that that is, is, is one of the key things for, for everyone to understand. Employees, and this is science, em- employees are <laughs> engaged and motivated um, by things that, that are satisfiers and dissatisfiers, right? There's kind of two sides that lie on either side of an axis, Mm-hmm. And and what you just talked about there uh, uh, addresses that really um, accurately, I think. The most important thing, and this is, again, it's science. It's not just us making it up. We know that people really care about a sense of achievement, that they care about being recognized for their work, that they feel that they have a mission and a purpose and that they have some growth. And those things don't cost anything, by the way. Right? right. Salary tends to lie on the left side of that zero axis. In other words, it's a dissatisfier, and that means that if, and you just said it, if pay is not accurate to the market and to their skills, it will drive people away from your organization, but it lies only a little bit on the right side of that zero axis. In other words, people aren't attracted to you just because of money. They're much more attracted about that growth conversation for themselves personally. That's right. Yeah,
1: that it's a great reference to if anybody wants this information, Frederick Hertzberg, he he did a study of studies. And it was, you know, across many, many studies of what drives extreme job satisfaction and it's a major breakthrough is that you can't just do one thing and keep your people. You have to do two. You have to pull the burr out from under their saddle. You have to address the things that are frustrating them, um, burning them out ticking them off. You know, you've got to address those things that are making them angry and disengaged so that they get back to zero. Then you also have to do the things that drive extreme satisfaction. And and there's good news, bad news there. I mean, the good news is most of the things that drive extreme satisfaction at work don't cost anything, but they're not easy. They require the human effort of our leaders to engage eyeball to eyeball, voice to voice, you know, person to person with things like regular one on ones and conversations that uh, respect and honor the goals and hopes and dreams of that individual. And the fact that it, it makes something make it about them, not just about the company.
0: And I, And I love that 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 you purposely, as I do, we purposely use that word "leader." We don't say the word "manager" much anymore. It, there's a massive difference in that, and it's a really critical difference in thinking and an approach and the role that leaders need to play in in business today.
1: Yes, you know what? That's not one of our five, but it's a great little side note. <laughs> yes. we we there is the the field of management. there is a practice of management. There are things that we need to manage. But everyone who is a manager also has the potential to be a leader, especially if they're involved with human beings, including themselves, which then qualifies in my book. Every single person is a leader because everyone is trying to muster the support, engagement, enthusiasm and productivity of that person in the mirror. And there's nobody tougher to lead than that person. So, um, yeah, we've got to be developing our leaders as a key
0: part of this strategy. We, we might have just discovered an, a new podcast topic for next time. <laughs> All
1: right. Well, we'll keep going with these ones. Uh, the, the, the second thing is talking about people as our greatest assets. I mean, that I, I love it when I hear it. I love it when I hear a leader say, our people are our greatest asset. Except I've come to the realization that they often don't actually act that way. And for a logical reason that people don't lie on the balance sheets of companies. Where you find your people if you go and, you know, you look where their things are measured is over there in the income statement as the largest mm-hmm. expense. And so it shouldn't really be surprising that even if you talk a good game and say people are our greatest asset, our managers are out there trying to manage P&Ls and they may not be leading. They may not be thinking, you know, with this more long-term more big picture perspective they might be stuck in management and what a what happens when you manage a PL is you typically try to minimize your expenses and what you're doing is often minimizing your people so there's a second part of that and that is simply that we don't own our people if you think you do you will be mistaken when <laughs> those people get up and leave we must embrace our folks as volunteering their time talent and treasure toward the mission of whatever our organization is. So I, I like to think what we what we can really think of as an asset of the company is their trust. So the relationship with your employees is the most valuable asset of an organization. And get your leaders thinking about how do we maximize the value of that asset? And ironically, if they actually said, well, what if our people were like, computers or a piece of equipment. Well, actually you'd probably treat them better because you realize like anytime you make a big investment, you, you want to maximize the return on an investment. So you take good care of it. You maintain it. You, you make sure it's in great working order. You upgrade the software. You know, you do all these things when you invest in an asset that often we aren't thinking about doing with our people, um, or with the relationship and the trust of our people so that second one talk about your people as your greatest asset i would encourage people to say replace the word talked with act you know act as though the trust and relationship with your people is your company's greatest asset and if you think about maximizing return on any producing asset well you want to extend its life as long as possible you want to make sure it's in optimal working order and that's where it's ironic that you know you do a discounted cash flow and you realize wow if our sales team went from being here on average of 4 years to an average of 5 years we would be far more profitable so how could we make some good decisions that would make them ideally love to, to stay and, and again, feel like they're growing. Um, so it, it, it's, maybe it sounds like a little play on words, but it's a really mm. important distinction um, when you're talking to your leaders and when you're talking to your people. Cause again, if, if you're acting like they are assets, some of them are prickling at that. They're like, you don't own me. <laughs> and yep, and I'm not sure I want to be retained.
0: Um, pretty sure. Last time I checked, I, I'm trying to grow my career and have an impact on the world. Right. Yes. I mean, it, it is about maximizing the ROI from the investment that a company is making in their people. That's, that's, that's right. another way of thinking of it. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Yep. All right. Number three
1: is stressing the importance of company values and culture. Best, you know, culture, uh culture-minded award-winning companies often are stressing the importance of their company values and culture and it sounds like there just couldn't be anything wrong with that except findings that show that it doesn't actually drive engagement it's so ironic but this is also fairly dated but if you look at the uh, leadership challenge by kutzes and posner it's it's uh, over 10 years old but one of the things they did is said how committed to people are an organ, to an organization, uh, how committed are they if they're clear on the company's values versus their own values? And the only thing that significantly makes a difference is when they get clear on their own values. In fact, if they're not clear on their own values and they gain clarity of the organization's values, their commitment to the organization ironically can go down a little bit. And so what do companies do typically with onboarding, with their marketing, with a lot of their internal communications, we talk a lot about the company. And a big head snapper here is, you know, spend some of the time in an employee's first week or if they've already been there, make sure you do this with your existing folks. Help them get clear on who they are. You can see about a 25% increase in their commitment to the organization by them getting clear on who they are. And it's easy. And again, it doesn't cost anything. It's largely a conversation.
0: And and Travis, do you think that also means that when you're orienting somebody or onboarding somebody that having them hear the sort of communication of values of others who came before them is valuable in that? I mean, do do, do they wanna see what others are sharing about their own values?
1: In my experience, David, that is absolutely true. Um, so I, I learned this in a prior company, an Atlanta-based company here that also is very uh, strong on building culture. And, and, and once we saw that data and we realized, wait, we're spending all of our time talking about the company, we created a space in the onboarding experience, which was, you could do it in 15 minutes, but we would spend about 45 because we wanted them to learn about their own values and then share them with each other. Um, Hearing about someone else wrestling with what what sits in my top three to top five values, it, it reveals a ton about them. And so you started actually relationship building. They start bonding with each other on a deeper level that has nothing to do with their title. So I, I think it's fantastic to share how other people are discovering who they are. Most people, they have an idea, but they're not crystal clear. And without that clarity, they can't really act on them. Excellent. Should we keep going? Let's keep going. All right. Number four is, uh, sounds good. Let's strive to help our employees balance work and life. I love this one. It sounds great. And you know, at a time when burnout is on the rise, people need a little more balance on work and life. And if, if you're working, you know, plenty of studies that show diminishing returns and ultimately negative returns, if you are working too much, but I think there's something better and it's not just uh, a playing with the word balance necessarily of saying, oh, it's work-life integration. It's a fundamentally different idea. And that is strive to help employees improve their work and lives. Because if we, we tell people, hey, I, I really want you to get some more work-life balance. David, what do you think the, fir- the first thing that person's going to do? They think it means
0: more time off.
1: Yeah, work less. Mm -hmm. (laughs) work-life balance equals work less. I think that's kind of the accepted formula. It's almost like shorthand. And yet, if we said, I want to make sure you're improving in work and life, it, it just sparks the brain to think differently. And it might mean, am I doing my best work? Do I have the right skills? Am I using my time productively? Am I focused on the right priorities? And how am I doing physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually? Am I whole and healthy? And it's that power of the and, um, at least in our society, work is a big deal. And it's fueled by a lot of the energy that comes from your life. And so I really like to put work and life on the same side of the equation. In fact, I think they're multipliers of each other. It's it's sort of work times life equals results. And if either one goes to zero, you get nothing. Okay, let's let's move on to this last one, number five. And that is to be sure that your managers and employees are getting training. Now, as a person in our organization who is responsible for for a big piece of that, uh, we've got a learning and development team. We have investments in corporate training programs and systems and software and content and all that stuff. I think training is fantastic. But I would still change this word because when you're sure or... Telling your managers and, and telling your leaders, like, make sure your people are getting training. They they may, again, try to hit the easy button, is just send them to something. It's a very passive act. The manager typically is not very engaged in that. Frankly, your employees aren't that engaged in it either. They're going expecting to be trained. It's a passive activity. Uh, training is finite. There are only so many classes. I mean, there are a lot, lots and lots of them, but it's still finite. It tends to not be as personal as I'm going to send you to the such and such class. And it's fairly expensive. I hate to add the fact that you can look at a lot of studies that show that most corporate training is also not very good. (laughs) So let's tweak one word, and that is be sure your managers and employees are getting developed. And I believe that development, again, is a ever so subtle switch in the thinking and the conversation and the ownership. And if, if a given leader is saying, I want to be sure that you're getting developed, well, actually, there are infinite solutions on the board. It doesn't necessarily mean you go to a class or that you leave the office. It, it might be, let's be sure we're just talking a little more frequently. It might be a mentor relationship. It might be, hey, let's grab a handful of folks and read a book together. And have some great conversations over lunch. So again, typically, the cost of development is lower. The ownership is higher by both the leader and the employee, because I'd say, let's talk about where it would make the most sense to be developed. Um, Are there skills? Are there motivations? Are there goals of yours that may or may not be exactly what we currently have training on? Um, so I believe it opens the door to infinite more solutions. It can be really simple. Um, David, how do you feel about that? Again, I don't Yeah, want-
0: that that word change. I, I I love that word change. I I think of it it's a the development word is analogous to growth, right? Back to an yeah. earlier word, growth. And 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 I learned someone taught me a long time ago, don't remember, it's been so long. But animals are trained, people learn. Mm. <laughs> Another subtlety, right? Um, powerful yeah
1: yeah and and you made a good point this kind of ties back to number one and the reality is is if you take these five and you start to work them over and over and over you start to realize this is all kind of the same thing which is back to number one if if you're focused on making sure that people are growing they feel like they matter to you they actually feel like Their relationship with you is an asset of the company. Um, There is a natural stress on their values and their needs, not just the company. You're improving both their work and life. By the way, life improves just by achieving more at work. I can build skills and mastery at something at work and I go home happier and vice versa. So that's the five. I bet we could come up with ten more, but um
0: hopefully there's something in there that's actionable for folks who are listening um
1: David, any parting thoughts
0: well i, I just that we're so fortunate to have you you know leading our strategy uh, you know we're we're one of the winners, I believe I think that the 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 evidence is clearly there um you you were sharing with me the other day that you know we're really quite fortunate that we put up a job posting, we actually get applicants just. And puts us ninety percent of the head of the rest of the world here. We're really, really struggling uh, with that aspect. So we we are very fortunate to have the kind of place, and and we want you know our customers to to become that um, you know a net attractor, right? We yeah. want we want everyone to be able to to have a great workplace that builds a great reputation that's filled with great wonderful people to work with, uh, and there are ways to do it, and that's you know that is what we do all day every day here. We're working on these workforce strategy issues. They're large issues. They're they're long term issues, and it takes just what you you t- alluded to earlier. We we have to think about the whole employee at any organization. We've got to make sure we're taking care of their physical well being, their financial well being, their emotional mental well being. It is very much uh, t- takes that army of, of folks, and, and I'm really fortunate to to work with such solid people on the benefit side and on the retirement and wealth side so that we can help contribute on the, on the human resources side with, you know, maybe a little bit better policy here or there. Let's take away one of those burrs under the saddle by tweaking this thing, by helping to create a few more attractors on the, on the right side of the scale. Let's, let's, let's do something that creates a sense of achievement, recognition and for growth. That's, that's, that is, Really, the top three things that people value. So, there's lots of ways to skin the cat. No organization is the same. No one's saying that it's only one remedy. You know, there are there are plenty of companies that um, that uh, they have to operate differently, right? We've got high margin customers and low margin customers, and white collar customers and blue collar customers, and there is there is no one answer. But we think that we're coming closer to the best possible answer for any given situation. Because of the way that we work together on these problems, um, and I, I, I thank you for sharing your your insights. I think they're really, they're really valuable. You know, I I learned from you a lot. Uh, I learned from talking to our customers a lot, and this is just there just can't be a more important conversation, you know, at, at us as human resources professionals can be having than this conversation. Awesome.
1: Well, I I love that. I I appreciate the kind words. Um, I have learned so much from you as well, David, and so thankful that you're out there serving our customers. So um, thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate the chance to do this with you. Thank you, everybody.